You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Kingdom of God, we trace the story of God's kingdom throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We're going to look at one parable, but it's put in two different places. So the parable of the weeds starts in verse 24 and goes down to verse 30. And then Jesus explains this parable in verse 36 um, down to verse 43. So that's going to be the the main chunk of Scripture that we'll be looking at today. And again, as we've been going through this uh, series on the kingdom of God, we've been saying that the kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's Rule, And we've been kind of doing this at a a 10,000 foot view. And today we're just going to swoop in and see what Jesus says about the kingdom. Again, we've been saying along the lines that the Bible that we have, the theological center of that Bible is Jesus Christ. So everything in that Bible from Genesis to Revelation is pointing to Jesus. And the framework that all the the whole Bible works within is is the kingdom of God and such the the series that we're doing the kingdom of God. And then we've also been looking at the fact that God uh, ministers his kingdom through covenants. So you have a theological center that's Jesus. Um, the, The thematic structure of the Bible is the kingdom of God. And then he administers his kingdom through covenants. And last week, We saw that Jesus comes onto the scene after 400 years of silence, of of people anticipating, waiting for the kingdom to come. And Jesus declares in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this, we need to put ourselves within the Jewish nation, within Israel, just for a moment, just to understand what this means for them and what they're anticipating and and how it works out for us as we're looking back and and reading this declaration from Jesus. Now, we got to remember that in in Israel's history, they were God's people chosen right through Abraham and put through, and they were always moving to a place and given his authority to live under, and they would consistently always buck his authority and do their own things, and then he would have to exile them and then bring them back and give them another chance, and on and on and on. We see God's grace, his covenant of grace being played out all over the Bible. But Israel is now in a land that's not their own. So they're still God's people, but they're in a foreign land under a different power. They're no longer um, under God's power. They're under the Roman power. They're kind of controlling everything the Romans are at this point in time. Um, And they're kind of under this yoke of oppression of a foreign power, which is the Roman government. Israel had one time been politically independent, economically self-sufficient, but... And, but now it's just simply like a colony within the Roman Empire. They're no longer under God's rule, so to speak. They're under the Roman rule. And then Jesus comes along and says, Hi, the kingdom is here. And for those in Israel, that, that meant something specific for them that may mean completely something different for us if, as we read this. They were no longer God's people and God's place under God's rule. They were still God's people, but their land was taken away, including their capital. They were under the rule of the foreign power, the Roman government. And as their ancestors did, they were longing for a king to come and rescue them. When will this king come? Jesus steps up and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus said, listen, I'm not a king like the one you expect at all. I'm not bringing a sword or an army. Eventually I will, but not right now. And and I'm going to bring in the kingdom in a way that you far do not expect. It's going to be different. I'm doing it my way because I'm God and this is the way God designed it. Jesus did not come with a five-step action plan to overthrow the Roman government or to establish in order to establish his kingdom. Again, he didn't come with a sword. He came with a message. And the message was repent and believe and follow me. That was his message. Repent and believe and follow me. For those Jews, for the Jewish people... Of God, um, there were two things they had to see about the kingdom of God that they just did not understand. So as Jesus lays out his parables in both Mark 4 and Matthew 13 about the kingdom of God, a, a, like a, a 10,000 foot thing is there's this kind of two things that the Jewish people really had to learn about God's kingdom and something that we need to learn also. First, the kingdom of God is a more radical and more comprehensive thing than you can possibly imagine. Right, because when we think about the, the Jewish people, they're just like they're all about okay. Um, the king's going to come; he's going to overthrow Rome. We get to, we get our power back, we get our economy back, we get everything back. And, and Jesus says, "No, it, it's coming differently." But it is even more radical than that, than the idea of just coming in and conquering another nation. And the second thing is, the kingdom of God is not coming immediately. It's not all here. It's not coming immediately, but it's coming incrementally. And gradually, the kingdom is here, but it's not fully consummated yet. Just like the two big overarching things that he's trying to describe to them or teach them within the parables of his teaching about the kingdom of God. First, it is so radical, so much more radical than what you think of just someone coming in and conquering another nation. And the second thing is that it's, it's here, but it's not fully here. It's not coming all at once. It's coming incrementally. Again, Jesus taught this in many of his parables in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. And and all a parable is is a comparison. It is a concrete uh, depiction of a cosmic truth. So he's just trying to give us an illustration of, okay, here's a parable. And many times he's spoken parables. So as we've been singing about the blind and those that see and those that don't see. See, all through Jesus' teaching, there was people that he specifically didn't want them to see at that point in time. It wasn't their time or different things like that. So it is a concrete depiction of a cosmic truth. That is why Jesus is constantly saying the kingdom of God is like. So when we read our parables within a Bible, that's, that's what we're seeing. He's making, they're making comparisons. So the kingdom of God is like this or that. And he's making a comparison for us to understand what the kingdom is. Now we can't go through all the parables <laughs> So we will just focus in on one where we will see that the kingdom is not coming immediately, but incrementally. And we will get a glimpse of its radical, radical nature. So turn with me to Matthew 13, 24. Let me read down to verse 30. And we'll talk about that a little bit just in general. And then we'll keep on going to where Jesus kind of unpacks and tells us what it means. In verse 24, he says, he put another parable before them. This is Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Now, in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. Just keep that in mind. May be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat 
and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now notice that this parable has three basic components. First, the work of the farmer. We see the work of the farmer. He sows his wheat. He grows good seed because the servant's asking, didn't you grow good seed? Why is there some weeds growing up along with the wheat? He does sow good seed. And then what we also see is the, the crop begins to grow. Second, the work of the enemy. Now, the enemy is Satan. That's who the enemy is within this parable. He comes and sows seed alongside of the wheat. He sows a counter crop. It looks just like wheat. Um, they really can't tell the difference, but, but the, the farmer was like to his servants, don't pull it up because you might pull up the wheat with it. This crop looks like wheat, but has no head of green at maturity. So in other words, this weed looks exactly like wheat, but there's no fruit to it. That's a, that's a big statement. So it grows right along the wheat, and it kind of looks just like the wheat, but there's no fruit at the end when it's time to harvest. This crop grows alongside the wheat, and it sucks up the nutrients and soaks up the moisture and stunts the growth of the good crop. So you have the, worker, the work of the farmer, the work of the enemy, and then you have the patience of the farmer. Because see, the servants wanted to take care of it. Let us fix this. We'll go out in the fields. We'll pull up these weeds, and um, we'll take care of it. But the, the farmer is like, no, we need to be patient. The servants, again, want to take action. Things are confusing for the servants and difficult to discern. The wheat and the weeds, what's happening here? Why are you allowing this to happen? Eventually, the farmer said, eventually, in time, in God's time, the weeds will be taken up and burned. And that's exactly what we read about in Revelation 14. So there has been seeding and sowing of a good crop. There's a period of time in which two crops vie for each other. They're, they're growing right beside each other, and, and, and they look much alike, but one produces fruit, and one does not produce fruit. But the, at the end, at the end, everything will be clear. Everything will be clear. In the meantime, be patient, he tells his servants. Just be patient. So what does all this mean? Jesus doesn't leave them hanging later on. They ask him, what did, you know, because he just gives this parable and moves on to another teaching. If you're looking in your Bible, you can see that he's just moving on to different teachings. And so his disciples are like, what in the world does this mean? So verse 36, he says this, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. That's why I said the, the evil one is Satan. That's who the evil one all through the Bible is. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, which is exactly what we read about in Revelation 14. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. So what Jesus is teaching in this parable, the cosmic truth he brings down in the concrete expression, because that's what parables do, are these two things. First of all, in the world today, there are two kingdoms. And I'm not really sure why God keeps bringing me back to this to tell you guys about this. That Do you believe that there's actually two kingdoms out there? That, that actually that Satan exists and, and he has those that are, that are not saved, that, that are not in Christ, are living for them. That's what John taught us. In, in 1 John. Do we, do we truly believe that? I'm not sure why he keeps bringing this up. And he keeps having me say this over and over. I guess we need to get this in some way. Because I think if we really get this, then we can put some things in perspective. Just like you think about the Jews. They were looking for someone to conquer the Romans. Because they think that the Romans is the problem. And I'm pretty sure that many of us, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, but many of us sitting here today, if I asked you about some of the problems in your life, you would identify things like the Romans. And you would say, oh, if this just was not this way, or this political person wasn't in power, or this um, authority was not in my life, or this, that, and the other, you would look out to external things, and you would blame those things. If those things would just change, what Jesus is trying to say to you is, no, there's two kingdoms in this world. One sowed by the evil one and one sowed by God. And so one that's sowed by the evil one is the cause of all the grief and evil in the world today. That's what he's trying to get us to see. He's trying to frame and show us a worldview that helps us look at things from a biblical perspective. So that we don't react and, and be harsh and overreact and trust in things that are not him. He's trying to get his servants to see us to see that these two things are growing at the same time. But we can have faith and confidence because we are in Christ that one day it will all be taken care of. And it's not up to us to judge. And it's not up to us to punish. It's up to us to trust that God will absolutely do what he says he'll do here. In other words, there's two kingdoms. There are actually two orders of reality side by side vying with each other. Just like the weed and the wheat. The second thing he's trying to teach us is there is nothing more important in life than to know the difference between those two crops. There's nothing more important to know the difference between those two kingdoms. Because the worst thing is, is to get to that point that we're reading about in Revelation 14 and you think that you're okay, but you're not. You're a weed. Because you didn't trust in Christ, you trusted in other things. Because you just kind of put on this blanket of religion where you show up to church once in a while and you read your Bible once in a while and you do some nice things and you think you're okay, but you're not. It's a scary thing. But there's good news. There's always good news because Christ is involved and he's always working. He's always saving people. Again, we need to know the difference between those two kingdoms and to which one we belong. Again, we thought, the, the, um, Israel thought that their problem was labeled the Romans, right? It wasn't quite there. We, we've read and we've talked about 
that um, what James says that most of the problem is actually within our hearts, but but God is Jesus is also showing us that there's these two kingdoms building um, alongside one another. The king was supposed to come and conquer the Romans. Jesus completely contradicts the expectation of the time. The second kingdom that is growing right alongside God's kingdom is the reason life has so much misery in it. That's the reason. Because there's two kingdoms growing alongside one another. That's what Jesus is trying to say. This is how things are fundamentally broken. Tim Keller says this about this reality. At the very roots of reality, there is an evil. At the very roots of the psyche and at the roots of our society and at the roots of reality itself, at the roots of the natural and even the supernatural fabric of the universe, there is an evil, a cancer, that's eating out out the guts of the way things are. So everything is distorted and everything is broken. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And that's what he's alluding to. And what Jesus is saying is because these two kingdoms are growing side by side. And it really helps us to give, put on the correct lens of the gospel to see how do we interact with this. What things do we give our time to in order to make good change? What Jesus is trying to get his disciples and us to see is that he is bringing into earth an invasion of the power of God. God's rule. These two Crops are growing side by side, but, but they are not equal in power by no means. Satan is a defeated foe. He's just squirming until the end. And he's trying to take as many people with him as he possibly can. And I know that I, as I say that, I bet half of you are saying like, Soakis, do you really believe that? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. But God's rule is working towards something. His kingdom is working towards something. His kingdom is is something that we should long for. His kingdom, when it's fully here, is something that we should hope in. It's something that should give us great joy. I mean, just for a minute, imagine a world without sorrow, without hatred or grief. Imagine a, a world without poverty, sickness, or injustice. Imagine a world without racial strife or loneliness. Imagine a world without guilt shame or fear, which is the three basic things every single one of us struggle with every single day, is guilt, shame, and fear. Imagine a world in which all the brokenness and political, and, and the political things has been completely eliminated. Just completely eliminated. Imagine a world like that, Jesus says. That is what I'm here to bring. That's what we are working towards. That's where we are headed if you are in Christ. See, the message Jesus uh, was giving his disciples is very relevant for us today. Are we trusting in our political, economic, social institutions to fix what is broken around you and in your life? Jesus is here telling us it's not going to get fixed. They're not going to fix it. They might put a Band-Aid on it, but they're not going to fix it. Why not? Because the kingdom... There's two kingdoms that are rising. And one day, he's going to come and take away the kingdom that is causing the strife, the evil, and everything. So what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in now? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in all these different institutions that 
that you believe that's going to change things, make things so much better. It's not going to happen. Why? Because, yes, these institutions are broken. Not only that, but reality itself is broken. That's what Jesus is showing us. That reality itself is broken. But Jesus says, I am here to inaugurate the kingdom of God so that as I take every inch of reality and bring it underneath the light and power of my royal will, it will be healed and transformed. Bit by bit. This is what we see whenever God changes us and saves us. That our own little world changes. We see things a little bit different. We have a little bit more joy. We don't get angry as much. He's working in us. He's changing us. Jesus goes on, and through what I am going to do on the cross, I will bring you into this kingdom. And you know how it starts? It starts by taking dry, dead bones and making them come alive through the new birth. So, it's going back to the prophets talking about dry bones that that every time the gospel is preached, it's, it's preaching between those that are alive and those that have dead, dry bones, and they need to come alive. And and Jesus does that through the Holy Spirit, through the new birth. The Spirit of God is here. The power of God is in the world now. Jesus says, I have planted like a farmer plants, and I'm going around, and I'm changing people's lives. God's doing that through us. As I've said many times, probably not the way I would choose to do it, but that's how he's doing it. He saves us, he changes us, and then he, and he calls us to be his representative, to go and share the good news of the gospel, to go and share what Christ has done for us. This new reality becomes your reality when you're born again. It reconstructs every part of you, the way you think, the way you live, The way you feel, your values, the way you look at life, it changes everything. And if it hasn't changed everything, then there's two alternatives. One is is you're quenching the spirit or you're not really born again. It's a hard statement. But there should be change. That's, That's the Holy Spirit's purpose in us is to change us from one glory to another. He is going to make us look like Christ more and more, incrementally. That's his job. That's his point. That's his whole purpose. Through the Word and the Spirit, he is changing us. One of the marks of a person who has entered into the kingdom of God is that your life is completely turned upside down by the knowledge, simply, that you are now accepted. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to cover You are accepted by God. Not because you're an awesome person, but because God chose you to give his grace to you. That moment in time where he caused your heart to be changed and you were born again. That's just such good news. Such good news. See, we can say, because you saved me, Lord, because of what you did on the cross for me, because you forgave me, because through, uh, because through you I am right with God, I will do anything I know you want. Anything I can read in your word, anything I know is your will, that's my desire now. 
My desires have changed. My path in life have changed. You have changed me. I say anything less is less than the kingdom mentality. So we, we can't just walk the line. We, we can't say, oh, you know, sometimes I want to be the weed and do everything that my kingdom wants to do. And sometimes I'll be the wheat and, and I'll, I'll follow God a little bit just so I can make sure at the end that he'll see me as a wheat but not as a weed and won't take me out. Well, brothers and sisters, he sees our hearts. He knows us. You, you're naked before him. He knows your heart. You can't fool him. But he calls people like me and others that you have sat and listened to to, to stand up and declare this good news, this, some of this foolish th- foolishness things that the world would say is foolish just so that he can work in your life and change you. Because he loves us that much. He loves us that much. Can you say this today? That I am in the kingdom, that I have been changed, that my world has been turned upside down, that I have new desires, and, and that I hate sin as much God hates sin? Because, again, within this parable, there is an absolutely frightening truth. And that is the enemy is sows weeds that look just like wheat until the very end. It means that there are many people who are duped into thinking they are Christians when they are not. That is the very clear, clear, clear statement of this passage. So many people in this country think they are Christians because the family they grew up in, the town they grew up in, the area of the country they grew up in, but they are not. It's heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. Jesus gives us the picture of a farmer sowing seeds in the field, which tells us that the wheat Christians have been planted. These folks are planted, right? Think of the the picture that he's given us. Why does Jesus use being planted as one of the metaphors? Because a plant exists completely through the operation of something else. A plant can't plant itself. It can't plant itself. It has to be all of God. In the same way, Jesus uses born again as a metaphor describing what it means to be a Christian. You are born again. Nicodemus, Jesus is explaining about being born again. And Jesus is, I mean, Nicodemus is trying to figure out, well, how do I go back into my mother's room? I can't be born again. Well, you didn't choose to be born in the first place. And This is the point that he's trying to show us. It's all of God. It's all of God. That's why he uses these metaphors. A plant can't plant himself, and a baby can't choose to be born. It's all of God. So what are you trusting in right now? What are you trusting in right now? If we think that Christianity is a matter of self-reformation, making a few good decisions, or kind of straightening up my life, you know, there's a good conversation about rated R movies over breakfast. It's like, okay, I won't watch rated R movies, and that will get me into the kingdom of heaven. No, well, that's not quite it, because you're just trusting in what you're not doing and trusting in what Christ did. 
That's, that's, that's complete opposite ends of a spectrum. Complete opposite ends of salvation. One leads you to salvation and one leads you to be a weed. So brothers and sisters, if you have never sensed the power of God coming on you and showing you things you have never seen before, it's amazing that we sang that song about David and the blind man and and just because he opens his eyes, he still can't see. He still can't see. It's not until God pours his grace on him that he can see. That he can see. Until the power of God has come into you and now you see things differently. You feel like, man, I'm a, a different person. And, and the main thing you're going to see is <gasps> how much of a sinner I truly am. Now, that takes a while to stop pointing fingers and saying, well, I'm a little bit better than that person. I'm a little bit better than that person. No, in God's eyes, we're all sinners apart from God because He is holy and righteous. We are all in the same boat. None of us are just a little bit further along than the other person. We're all in need of a Savior. All of us. Bottom line is this a Christian knows that I'm a miracle. Right? I'm a miracle. Remember, Jesus sent his disciples out and they went and they healed some people and they casted out some demons and, and they all come back and they're reporting and all joy about all the things he did. And he says, Ah, you should be glad that your names are written in the book of heaven. That's the true power. Angels rejoice when one sinner turns. And becomes a saint. If you're sitting here today and you're like, well, man, I did this, I did this, I did that, and that's why I'm a Christian, then you missed it because there's no way in that can you say that that was a miracle. Because every single one of us that are Christians is a true miracle. That God changed our hearts and caused us to be born again. You are not a Christian because of a decision you made at some point in your life. None of us can demand God to cause us to be born again. That's insane. That's insane. You can't do that. No human can. It's an act of God. It's an act of His grace. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. This week, I just I stumbled onto a mostly a lecture from Paul Washer about this. And I, I just put it along the side because I was like, I, you know, okay, I'll, I'll use it sometime. And he just kept pressing on me about showing the difference between the weed and the wheat. The difference between those that um, maybe from no fault of their own have been given a, a path to Christianity that is completely unbiblical. So, uh, most prominent invitation for a person to come to Christ that we have in America goes something like this. And, and maybe some of you have, this, this is how you came to faith or believe this is how you came to faith. And I would say that if you are truly a Christian today, you came to faith, you 
have been born again in spite of this invitation. Doesn't it sound something like this? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you know you are a sinner? I mean, if you ask Satan if he's a sinner, he would say, yes, I'm a really good sinner. Do you want to go to heaven? Well, who doesn't want to go to heaven, right? Do you want to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? And that is nowhere in the Bible. Did he come in when you prayed? Were you sincere? You are now a Christian. Welcome to the family of God. And the whole thing happens within a five minutes at the end of a sermon. That's tragic. It's absolute tragic. Because it's not biblical. And again, there's so much here that like, I could take this statement and just do a whole sermon on it and unpack it and show you what the gospel actually says. There are some hints of truth within that. But if this is the path, just look at it with me. It's up on the screen. Just read it again and tell me what are you trusting in for your salvation? Just take a moment. With this invitation, the only thing that you're trusting is is the sincerity of your prayer. Is it not? That's what you're trusting in. Did you pray the prayer? Oh, yeah, I prayed the prayer. Were you sincere? Oh, yeah, I was sincere. Oh, then you're good. Nothing about what Christ has done. Nothing about trusting who Christ is and what he has done and everything else. It's all about you. It's man centered but the gospel is Christ centered the kingdom of God is Christ centered I don't want you to be trusting in the sincerity of your prayer I want you to be trusting in the finished work of Christ because that's the only thing that will get you to heaven it's the finished work of Christ is that what you're trusting in and that good news, that gospel is not only good for the person that is, is a weed growing alongside these wheat so that they can become a, a wheat. It is good for the Christian every single day. What are you trusting in? Are you truly trusting in the gospel and the finished work of Christ? Or are you trusting in something else? In contrast... Every Sunday morning when you walk through the doors of this church, our whole service is the invitation. Our whole service is the invitation. Every Sunday you're reminded that you have been created by God and you are responsible to Him. We've all been created by Him, therefore we're all responsible to Him. And if you want to know what's happened to our hearts and why we go wonky all the time, read Romans 1. It lays it out really well for us. But we're all responsible for him. He is a good, righteous, just judge. God. That's who he is. We learn that that God is a holy God and we have sinned against him. And he is a just God and will punish the unjust. 
That's what Exodus teaches us. He will punish it. And that is a good thing. Because if he doesn't punish the unjust, then that means that he is not a good, righteous God. So what happens if we're in Christ? It's real simple. We no longer get the punishment. Our punishment went to Christ. And that's how God becomes and stays just. Because he gave what we deserved to Jesus on the cross when he poured his wrath out onto him. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what we are trusting in. Not a prayer. Not a sincerity of the prayer. We are trusting in what Christ did for us. For him standing there on the cross when he is fully God and could have stepped right off of there. But he didn't because the joy set before him was us. It was us. It was us. So he will punish the unjust. He is good and righteous. Those are in Christ. The punishment went to Christ. And the good news of the gospel is for those who have who God saves, his justice again is poured out on Christ instead of us. And if you have been truly given eyes to see, what you see is not only the beauty of the gospel, but you also see your sin as horrific as God sees it. And I'm not talking about the sins that you can drum up and think about. I'm talking about all the little lies and all the little things. I mean, the gospel and and the law and everything in the Bible points us to one thing. You can't do it. You need someone to help you. You remember, they were talking at breakfast about different movies and different movie series uh, yesterday at the men's breakfast, and they were talking about the Lord of the Rings and like what's some theological things that you might see there. Well, you know where my mind goes every time? It goes to Sam and Frodo going up the mountain. And what does Sam say? Sam says, Frodo, you can't do this by yourself. Let me pick you up and carry you. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. You can't do it. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. Your sin is just as grievous as those men that flew those planes into the buildings in New York City. Same sins. That's how God sees it. You need somebody to help you get there. And that person is Jesus Christ. So we don't trust in a prayer. We don't trust in the sincerity of a prayer. We trust in the finished work of Christ and what he has done for us. That's what we trust in. Then we see sin for what it is. And then we start hating sin. And as we hate sin, we're looking to ways that the gospel can overcome that sin and has overcome that sin. It's just whether or not we're believing the gospel in that point in time. See, a Christian is somebody who grows more and more content with God as the years go by. They no longer have to be entertained by the things of this world. When suffering comes, and it will... There would be, the world does not crumble because it is rooted in the eternal kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, are you growing in those ways? Are you growing at all? Everything that the Mountain City is designed to do, everything that we try to do, is not to draw a bunch of people into this building. It is designed so that you grow in Christ. And some of you will push hard and push hard and push hard, but we're going to come after you and we're going to drag you back. 
Because that's what he's called the shepherds to do. That's what a church is supposed to be doing. I mean, if you think about that invitation, right? You think about that invitation. God has, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for you. Well, if you're talking to a bunch of people that living for the kingdom of one and their kingdom is them, and then you stand out there and say, well, God loves you. They're going to agree. Well, I love me too. So I'm thinking about that. We can have that message and we can fill up the place. And we have a bunch of weeds choking out the wheat. Brother, sister, I want you to see how glorious Christ is. I want you to grow in Christ. I want your marriages to flourish because you're believing in the gospel. That you see your sin and, and how much it's affecting every area of your life. And you turn from it and you trust in him. Because one day God will gather both the wheat and the weeds. And the weeds, those that have no fruit, will be bundled up and thrown into the fire. See, we can't just try Jesus for a little bit. You just can't try a king who says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and follow me. It's not a sometimes, maybe, whenever I feel like thing. It is an all the time thing. See, we don't try out somebody like that. He is the king. You give yourself to him. You eventually stand before him one day. My prayer is that God has worked in your heart today and given you eyes to see just how horrific your sin is and just how beautiful the finished work of Christ is for you today. Today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you so much that you loved us so much to send your son, that, that it's not up to us, Lord, that you are doing it all. How was Josuaka saved? God did it. That's how he was saved. God did it. Lord, I pray that if anyone here, that you are working in their hearts now, Lord, I, I pray you have changed hearts, that they will leave their world behind, leave this world behind and trust in you, trust in the finished work of Christ. That they would turn, that's what repent means, they would turn and change their mind and trust in you. And Lord, for all those that are sitting here, haste we be reminded that the wheat was growing also. That we may have stumbled this week, that we may have even stumbled before we got out of our houses today. But Lord, but we are growing also. 
And you are working in us and changing us. As we, your children, continue to go to the cross and trust in you and turn away from our sin. Lord, I just pray that you would help us do that today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.